Section 3 of The Ring and the Book, An Interpretation by Francis Bickford Hornbrook This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 The Method and the Spirit The first book of The Ring and the Book gives the reader all the information he needs concerning its name, source, and arrangement. In the first few lines, numbers 1 to 32, we learn that just as the craftsman separates the gold from the alloy, by the aid of which he has been able to fashion it into a ring, so the poet has wrought, with the hard, crude material of his story, until he has at last left it a golden ring of poetry. We are then told how, and under what conditions, the poet found the square old yellow book, which contained all the bare facts he is to use and transform. Here we have an actual experience. There is such a book, and Browning bought it, as he says, in Florence, on the steps of the Riccardi Palace, for a lira, or about twenty cents. This book is now in the library of Balliol College at Oxford. Then follows a vivid picture of the circumstances under which the poet read the book. A book in shape, but really pure, crude fact, secreted from man's life, when hearts beat hard, and brains, high-blooded, ticked two centuries since. With this in his hand he walked on, so absorbed in its contents that he noticed none of the usual scenes through which he was passing. Still read I on, from written title-page to written index, on, through street and street, at the strozzi, at the pillar, at the bridge, till, by the time I stood at home again, in Casa Guidi by Felice Church, under the doorway where the black begins with the first stone slab of the staircase cold, I had mastered the contents, knew the whole truth gathered together, bound up in this book, print three-fifths, written supplement the rest. A captious critic might suggest that a book so bulky and so difficult could hardly be read through in twenty minutes but we must not expect too much exactness of statement from a poet. We have next the subject of the book, Romano Homicidiorum, nay, better translate, a Roman murder case, position of the entire criminal cause of Guido Franceschini, nobleman, with certain four the cutthroats in his pay, tried all five, and found guilty and put to death by heading or hanging as befitted ranks, at Rome, on February 22, since our salvation, 1698, wherein it is disputed if, and when, husbands may kill adulterous wives, yet scape the customary forfeit. The poet now narrates the fanciless facts, just as they lie recorded in the old yellow book. In these commonplace incidents of the course of a murder trial, we have the untempered gold, the fact untampered with, the mere ring metal ere the ring be made. But what has come of it? It has no power to live, or else it would be still living in the memories of men. Now, however, it lives only in this book, which, if it were destroyed, would leave Guido and Pompilia in absolute oblivion. Then, too, how little the crude fact gives us. From it we learn nothing about Giuseppe Caponsacchi, his strange course in the matter, was it right or wrong, or both? From it we learn nothing about either the old couple, 
Pietro and Violante, or the child of Guido and Pompilia, Gaetano. Nobody, the poet continues, has any recollection of the story, and he is unable to awaken any interest for it in the minds of those to whom he tells it. All records of it had long ago been destroyed. Those hostile to the church, when they found there was nothing in it against the church, but rather something in favour of it, cared to hear no more about it, while those friendly to the church promised him help if he became a convert to it. These latter ask him, Do you tell the story now, in offhand style, straight from the book, or simply here and there, the while you vault it through the loose and large, hang to a hint? Or is there book at all? And don't you deal in poetry, make-believe, and the white lies it sounds like? To these the poet answers, yes and no. He used his fancy in reshaping the story, as he claims he had a right to do, since fancy with fact is just one fact the more. With the aid of his fancy he tells the story again, and now it assumes a more living character. As we read, we come into closer relations with the actors in it, and we catch a glimpse of the motives of their actions. We are no longer dealing with past history, but the tragic piece is enacted before our eyes. We see what before we have only read about. For some poets, this would have been enough. Not so for Browning. He seeks to make the old woe live again as it lived in Rome two centuries before. To do this, he interfuses it with the motions of his own spirit. Man indeed cannot create out of nothing, but he can put life back into what once lived. The story of Faust is an illustration of this, but better still that of Elisha, who bade them lay his staff on a corpse face. There was no voice, no hearing. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the corpse, dead on the couch, and put his mouth upon its mouth, his eyes upon its eyes, his hands upon its hands, and stretched him on the flesh. The flesh waxed warm, and he returned, walked to and fro the house, and went up, stretched him on the flesh again, and the eyes opened. Tis a credible feat with the right man and way. In this manner the poet has unfolded the threefold method of dealing with his material. In the first place, he can state the crude fact of the story without any addition of his own. Secondly, he can add fancy to the facts, and so render them more impressive and attractive. And finally, more than that, he can inform and transfuse the facts with his spirit and make them live before us. And now a spirit lives within him, laughs through his eye and sways him as he turns the medicinable leaves. The narrative of events reveals the presence of this spirit. But the poet proposes to do even more than that. He will bring each character in the story before us and cause him to appear now as he appeared long ago in Rome or Arezzo. He will reproduce the talk of the city and cause us to hear what those who watched the drama had to say. The outline and structure of the poem grow naturally out of this. In the first book, Half Rome tells the story as it appeared to those who took the side of the husband. Then, the other half Rome tells it as it appeared to those whose sympathies were with the wife. Tertium Quid reproduces the view taken of the whole affair 
by the superior social section. So much for the talk heard on the streets and in the drawing rooms. Now, those who view the whole matter from within speak. First, Count Guido Franceschini gives an account of his life and deed, doing his best to appear in a good light before his judges. He feels he has a fist, then folds his arms crosswise and makes his mind up to be meek. Next comes Caponsacchi, the priest, and we hear his voice as he speaks in tones to which, under the circumstances, his judges feel they must listen in silence. Then Pompilia, surrounded by those who watch for every word and minister to every need, sighs out, as she lies dying, her version of the affair. The lawyers appear on the scene to teach our common sense its helplessness. Hyacinthus de Archangelis writes his plea on behalf of Guido and is followed by an argument against him, framed by Dr. Johannes Baptista Bottinius. After all these comes the Pope, who must give the final decision in the case, and whose meditations we are permitted to hear, as he sits, out the dim droop of a sombre February day in the plain closet. Guido speaks a second time, as he sits on a stone bench in his cell, to his old friends, the Abate and the Cardinal, and we learn from his speech how the tiger-cat screams now that whined before. After this the poet promises to bring us down to the prosaic events that immediately followed the execution of Guido. Each book of the poem is a fulfilment of what is indicated here, and he who reads this first book has the story and the plan of the entire poem. Whatever doubt he may have as to the meaning of particular passages, he can have no doubt as to the arrangement and purpose of the whole. To many readers of The Ring and the Book, one account of it seems amply sufficient, and if we were concerned with the story alone, the repetition of it might be wearisome. All we can know about it is well and clearly stated in the first book of the poem. The few incidents that are added in the following books are not important enough in themselves to justify the telling of the story over again. We may assume that the poet knew this as well as any of his readers. He has deliberately chosen to allow each one of his personages to give his own version of the affair, not in order that we may know more about it, but that we may learn more of the different characters. Each narrative is a revelation of the thoughts and feelings of the narrator and discloses something of his character, so that when we have finished the poem, we know the men and women in it, as otherwise we could not hope to know them. To Browning, the incidents of the poem are of slight importance, compared with the knowledge of the persons who relate them. When, therefore, we adopt his point of view, the poem assumes an interest which grows and deepens to its completion. End of section 3